Vodka. 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 Vodka O'Clock. Hi everyone, it's Amber Love from AmberUnmasked.com and you are listening to Vodka O'Clock. Today my returning guest is Mr. Steve Bryant who uh, is an artist, writer, storyteller and pretty much does everything. So we kind of hate him, right? No, kidding. So Steve hasn't been on the show for like two years. Can you believe that? Anyway, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I can't believe it's been that long. When I went back, I was like, oh, it's only been a year since we've talked. And I was like, oh, my God, two years. Yeah, I think I was gearing up for uh, Steed and Mrs. Peel at the time. Yes, you were. And you were just, like, dealing with Kickstarter. And uh, I think you've just, like, done a Hack Slash issue. And... Uh, I was writing a backup that was in Hack Slash, but... Uh, no, yeah. no, it wasn't in Hackslash. It was in Hoax Hunters. Um, Hoax Hunters. Okay, yeah, that was another one that I wanted to ask you about because it's I feel terrible. That's been on my like to read pile for a while, and I haven't read it yet. Oh, I I, I love the book. I wanted to to contribute in a small way, but um, yeah, I mean, what I what I did was just really <laughs> inconsequential. Oh, what did you do? What was your role? No, I mean, I I, I wrote like a two page backup for a few issues. Oh, cool. Okay. So nothing to to do with the main story. That's why I can praise it. Oh, okay. So there's no continuity issue in the indie world verse that it made. Right, right. And, you know, plus, you know, I don't want to brag about my own stuff, but I'll gladly brag about stuff I like from other people. So I can praise hoax hunters all I want. That's cool. <laughs> they should be they should be having a trade out any time now right? i think they've got two out right now and I, I think they're gearing up for what they they refer to as their second season so i hope okay. so that's good um i'm I, in the squeaky I think, chair i apologize i don't know how much of that you can pick you know, up that's so funny because so so is mine and it's terrible and i have to have like all my windows closed right now because there's a house being demolished like three houses down and it's really loud so it's like um kind of just stuffy in here and my squeaky chair, but uh, but no kitten trying to claw the screen or tap on the keyboard right this minute. We're gonna save that for the big finish. Yeah, yeah. He was a delight yesterday, coming up on the the desk and felt the need to push the all the buttons on the keyboard, and then he was really fascinated with the cursor moving across my brand new monitor, and he still has claws, and I was just like, oh, kitten claws, kitten claws are like shark teeth. So I was just like, ah, no, you must go. But um, he's cute. He's just a demon. Oh, that's all pets. <laughs> I say this as someone who loves his pets. Yes, you do. But I mean, I'm used to, you know, Keiko, she's old and she sleeps and poops and that's pretty much it. Like she's just a big, you know, furry doorstop. Like <laughs> she's she's just the easiest cat in the world to own. She's the best. So, uh, you know, when this allegedly allegedly foster kitten came into the house, um He's just like a tornado tearing, tearing through everything. <laughs> uh, we're just not used to it. Um, and apparently he now has like the most popular name in the world because um, I didn't name him. His name's Oliver. And uh, so it's like I, I swear every boy, child and male pet is being named Oliver this year. I did uh, not know that. But it's cool that you foster uh, foster animals. That's awesome. Well, it was like a family thing. Like someone found him at a crazy drunk woman's house, not me, and <laughs> um, and felt that he needed to be saved. So it was one of those, oh, look, I've got a new kitten. Then it was, here, can you watch him for a while? <laughs> and like, okay. And now he's part of the family. And now he's here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if he's going to return ever, but uh, I doubt it. No, he's yours now. Yeah. And he's orange, which is one of the, the types that we're kind of suckers for. So, you know, it's just really weird because my, my parents had an orange cat who, like, just died. Oh, so for, for Yeah, so for a few months, Keiko has been loving it that she has the house to herself. And then this little brat comes in. <laughs> she's just like, wait a minute. Like, it's a doppelganger. She's like, why, why is he back? <laughs> Except this one's probably a bit more energetic. He is. He's just wound. 
It's like, I, it, I don't know. It's unbelievable. I'm just not used to kittens because I've been adopting old cats for a while. So it is a new toddler-like experience. <laughs> it's fun. It'll keep you young. Yeah, yeah, it definitely does. And keeps you alert because when you're not looking, suddenly your legs are being used as a scratching post. Ah, that's always fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, what do you have now? Um, we have uh, a cat and a dog, and both of them are around nine years old. So, oh, they're both, you know, we're we're really hoping that the inevitable doesn't happen for both of them, you know, at the same time. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I like pets. Yeah. You have a mixed household. Yes, one pet, one uh, one cat, one dog, one boy. <laughs> but he's become a little more self sufficient now because he's thirteen. So older, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Um, so does he think that you're a cool dad because you make comics? I think so. Um, he's got his first girlfriend, and uh, she's also a nerd because he is. Oh, nice. So yeah, um, I brought them both stuff back from San Diego. So. I, I think I, I earned points. Eventually, I know he'll be embarrassed by me, but it hasn't happened yet. So I'm I'm happy about that. Okay. Um, so what kind of things do 13-year-olds like? Because I'm really out of touch. Um, they're big on the YouTubes. No. Um, okay. No, he really <laughs> likes uh, YouTube, watches lots of videos like that. But he, uh, like, my my parenting duties are... I'm I'm taking him through Buffy. We're we're on season five now, so you know I, I don't want to be a lax parent, so I got to make sure I'm doing that. Um, but yeah, he's big into into computer games. Uh, he loves uh, some graphic novel stuff like the the Amulet series by Kazoo. Um, uh-huh. Uh He's huge Doctor Who fan, so he's been reading all the the Doctor Who collections. Uh, big reader in general, not just of comics and graphic novels. So. Yeah, I'm raising a nerd. Nice. Which I mean, it runs in the family, so that's fine. That's cool. Um, it's nice to see the new generation. It's so funny now when people post about how, like, I think it was like a there was a recent Buffy anniversary. Like it was only a week or two ago. It was like Buffy came out this time, like however many years ago, and it's like oh, instant old. <laughs> yeah, I try to not freak out too much but it, it it isn't working real well oh i know right well happy birthday oh thank you only, i mean i hope it was good i mean you know it's it's august which out here it's been a nice august for a change which i've never in my life ever recall in august being this pleasant it's been really temperate but yeah i you know i wanted to, to i i didn't get to take my son swimming or anything this year so that's kind of weird but yeah it was a great birthday um i got while we were talking off air i i got a tablet monitor to draw on so i am really happy that sounds really great oh it's i'm thrilled and it was um is it uh, do they have like the same operating system or is it like specifically Mac? How do those work? I don't know. Um, this works. Uh, it had like installation disks for Mac or PC. So yeah, I, I have a Mac, so I, I installed that. But if I had a PC, I could have done that. And yeah, I'm just drawing in Manga Studio on it and having a blast. That's good. I saw um, somebody tweeted the other day because uh, on the commercial for the Surface Pro 3, it says that you can run the full Photoshop without a problem. And then I saw somebody tweet <laughs> basically saying, no, you can't. Like they're, they're running either, you know, one of these studio programs or Photoshop or something, and then they were having problems with it. Uh, so it's like, oh, it's like I want to believe. I want to believe in the technology that we can, we can do things like edit audio and video on much smaller scale things without needing these giant, huge, clunky machines. Oh, we're getting there. We're getting there. They're still expensive, though. Yes, that's true. Well, yeah, I mean, my my tablet is nowhere near the cost of a Cintiq. I couldn't afford that, so this is this is what I've got. And, okay, since you just got it, so you haven't, um, you don't transport it normally? Is that the sort of thing that you would take to a show? No, no. Or you just take your brushes and pens? Yeah, and... For, for for a show, I, I'll work traditionally. But this is, uh, 
a little too cumbersome to take. Plus, I think I'd freak out about it, you know, getting damaged. Yeah. Um, I'm paranoid. Yeah, no, and within right because I mean, traveling with expensive stuff to me just sounds scary. Like, I mean, I freak out about you know a two hundred dollar Kindle. Yeah, so. I never have the nerve to bring like my laptop with me or anything. I see people doing that, and I just feel like that's my fucking life on there. Oh, I'm sorry. Can I swear? Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, totally. Good. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm always afraid. You know, I've got everything on that thing. Right. And and unfortunately, you do hear about that once in a while from conventions that things got swiped off tables, whether it's, you know, a statue or cover, you know, from something. And, you know, I, I think Mark McKenna, I think it was about a year ago, he had something swiped right off his table. And it was just like, it's it, it's awful because you're like, but, you know, you're there for so many hours and the few minutes you take away from the table or you're not looking because you're you're helping somebody else out. And then, you know, don't be dicks, people. <laughs> this is true. That's probably a good rule in life in general. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I Are you – there's uh, – the week that we're in right now is yet another week of, of people being, you know, shitheads to each other, particularly, you know, violent threats against women, as usual, in entertainment. Um are are you at all sick of anybody asking you about what it's the Joss Whedon question? What it's like being a man writing strong female characters? No, I I, I haven't gotten that a lot. Um, so no, I haven't. Okay, <laughs> good because I was going to ask you. You know, I was gonna I was gonna th- throw out because I mean, it's you write characters that don't suck, and you've been working on. Your, you know, your big projects, Athena Voltaire, and then occasionally something else where the central character tends to be female. So I didn't know if it's you write them and they don't suck. Well, thank you. That's, you know, uh, and I, I didn't know if you if you were were getting to that point where you're, you know, the guy on the panel talking about female characters. Not, not yet. But I mean, I. When I when I was rescripting some of the Athena stuff, um, and I, I got to be careful because I don't want to throw Paul under the bus, uh, my my former collaborator. But there were there was some stuff in there where um, he had an Asian character speaking with with broken English, and that, I, I think the way that I write any character, I just try to think about: Am I going to be embarrassed? If, uh, you know, uh, a woman or a person of color comes up and buys my book and goes, God, this guy's an asshole, you know. So if if you think there's something that's potentially uh, insulting, don't do it. I mean, that, you know, if, if it's something you have to ask yourself, gee, I wonder if this could be taken wrong, maybe you shouldn't write it that way. I mean, is I don't really have any deep strategy. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's uh, no because I, I, it, it's like when when the gay community has asked questions about gay characters and stuff. It's like I'm sorry, I must have missed the meeting last month. Right. You know. <laughs> so, you know, like, are there are the, are the men getting together, going, how do we write women this month? Well, yeah, I mean, it's. Uh... It, it surprisingly, women—they're just like people. Uh, what do you and, know? And that, by the way, sar- sarcasm intended, just in case that didn't yeah. come through. But yeah, yeah, like that was that was one of my big fears um, with the the previous material. I I felt like there was some stuff where I just I I was looking forward to rescripting it, and that, that's not meant to say it, you know, in a throw anyone under the bus kind of way. It's just a different uh, perception, and so yeah, I. I think that's kind of the way that I, I view writing women or anyone. I, I just, you know, don't want someone to say, you know, you're kind of an ass. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I think all of my motivation just comes from wanting desperately for everyone to like me. And <laughs> how <laughs> how do you think um, your son, for example, is seeing gender these days? Like he's in a whole different generation, and I think there's a lot more awareness. So, do, you know, does he ever 
come up to you and ask these kind of questions like, why are they doing this to this woman or anything like that? Is he in, in touch with news stuff? Well, um, and by the way, I hope I hope I'm not being too glib about these things because they're they're real issues, and I, I I I'm trying to you know diffuse a little bit with humor, but these are important issues. But uh, no, in in terms of the way that that things go with with Chance, my son, um, you know, there was the there was the typical shift somewhere around uh, like seven or eight or maybe it was nine or 10 with, you know, oh, Barbies and all that stuff's dumb. You know, mm-hmm. in, in the past, it just, it wasn't really on his radar. So there was no big deal. But, you know, at one point he had to, to speak out about how dumb it was. Um, and, you know, that that's a tough one because, you, you know, you try to say, no, it's just not for you. I, you know, he started learning the words target audience around like age 10, I think you're not the target audience. Um, so that was kind of the beginning of it. Um, but it's funny because, uh, again, he's, he's got his first girlfriend. She really digs my little pony. You know, she also likes transformers. So, you know, there, there's a broad spectrum there. So previously, and IDW does great with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, previously he had not been big on on My Little Pony, but now he has to kind of shift around on that and, and understand that, well, Abby likes it and Abby's cool, so maybe it's just not for me, you know. So I, I, I think that's, that's been a good shift for him in terms of perceiving this stuff. But, um, you know, I, I think the big, the big test is he has no problems watching uh, – Buffy with us. Um, my girlfriend introduced us to Gilmore Girls, and we were having a blast watching that. And again, you know, he can see the the banter. It doesn't matter if if it's being delivered by a male or female. He sees the banter and kind of, uh, I think, a, a lot of the, the truisms with him and me kind of resonate with him. And I, I think that's ultimately what, what it comes down to, you know, as human beings is just all this stuff you can relate to whether it's, you know, being delivered by a male character or a female character. And I think he gets that. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Good. Well, I'm glad that I got to ask you because it's one of those things where I don't, I'm not around people with kids. So I, I get these curiosities and I pretty much just have Twitter. So like usually, usually that'll be my thing. Like, so what do kids think about this? <laughs> Cause I just can't even imagine being a kid growing up with the internet. Well, yeah, it's, I mean, I'm I'm always scared about what he's going to uh, be exposed to, obviously. But um, you know, he he watches a lot of, uh, and th- this is kind of cool. He watches a lot of uh, like game videos, and I know one of the the gaming. Uh, it's not quite a podcast; it's just videos. Uh, one, but one of the groups from one of the gaming things, uh, I know, has a woman that's a that's a big presence in it, and. He doesn't seem threatened by it, so you know. Hey, a thirteen-year-old boy's not threatened by it, so I hope that you know forty-year-old men can get over it. Yeah, it's just so funny when you know the advances of technology that they have with games, and when the people who make Assassin's Creed made some sort of stupid-ass remark that they couldn't have a female character unless in multiplayer or something because it was too complicated. It's like, are are you kidding? Like, who are you kidding right now? Like, we see right through you. Right. <laughs> well, and I mean, it's their prerogative if they don't want to, you know, include a female character. But by the same token, you're also as, you know, someone that produces content, you're saying, you know, we don't need 50% of the population to buy our stuff. You know, if if that's your prerogative, knock yourself out, Chief. Yeah. But, I think it's kind of limiting. And I mean, and it's, I think there's a, there's some kind of difference in the outlet. You know, like if we take something like a video game and compare it to established restaurants that, you know, target that male demographic, like the Hooters and Tilted Kilt and, and those places. I mean, they are, you know, because it's their business model that is, they don't have to hire, you know, male staff, right? You right. know, because you're not going to see a guy in the little orange shorts, 
I would love to see guys in kilts. Gotta say, it's a great thing at Celtic Fest. <laughs> so, you know, if the til- tilted kilt ever run on, you know, male staff, then maybe I'd go. But, um, but like I was, I was out with a couple guys at a strip club, and I was just like, you know, I think there were m- maybe five women, but all of them having a great time. You know, so it's just. It, you know, but it was a place where it also was safe. I mean, there were these gigantic men <laughs> just circulating this room where it never felt unsafe. That's cool. And I think the scary thing about video games is how sometimes, even though you're there with, you know, just behind your terminal and you got your headset and all, the the shit that comes through the dialogue and the content of the game. So you've got your players and the content problems. They just seem so unfriendly to women and it's just driving this wedge and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way because obviously there's so many people who get along just fine. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I always think it's really cool uh, when I've got, you know, women readers on my book. I like that. I, you know, I, 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 I won't lie. It's, it's neat to have both genders come up and hang out at a show. I feel like mm-hmm. I'm not doing something that's uh I don't know. Uh so so nichified that, you know, I'm back to being, you know, a a 9-year-old at school, you know, being the only kid in my class that reads comics or whatever. It feels more inclusive if if there's more people coming up of, of both genders. I had a point when I started that sentence, but obviously I you know, <laughs> veered off. But you know what I mean. I know. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. How, um, okay, I know that you said that you went to San Diego. You usually do Chicago. Um, how, um, have you noticed the shows improving that way and having um, just being, because I think that's been a, a big push for the last two years, basically, is for conventions to have harassment policies and for um, people to report when there's a problem and stuff like that. And so if there's people, if everybody feels comfortable coming up to your table, because it's also, you know, rated a specific way, like you have a pretty PG content, you know, to to Athena Voltaire. So um, have you noticed any changes from the conventions from year to year? Not really, um, but I mean, bear in mind, I I don't really uh, spend much time away from my booth. So, yeah, that's true. You know, it it's kind of like, well, my experiences are are pretty much whatever I see coming to me. Um, so, you know, that's kind of a I don't know a sheltered view. So I I, I have a hard time weighing in on a lot of stuff. Um, you know, most of most of my gripes are pretty insignificant, really. So, how do you think the um, the comics industry is is doing these days? Because there was there's a, a lot of there's always an argument every time a superhero movie comes out, for example, that Hollywood has taken over the conventions and that people aren't respecting the source material and stuff like that. Um, you know, you been around for what 20 years now <laughs> a long time i'm old 20 years and and making comics and uh, about 10 years making comics um but i i worked in in role-playing games and stuff since the uh late 80s so yeah i'm old um <laughs> so uh what's the question if if you think that um that the, the i don't know elitism has any foothold about the source material because I, 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 you know, haven't read an Avengers comic in years and love the hell out of the movies. Oh, I love the <laughs> movies, too. Um, well, I, I, OK, I, I think for the most part, the closer they they stick to the, the spirit of the source material, the better. Um, I, it's when they start to deviate from it. There, there's this whole, you know, we know better than than you kind of mentality. I mean, you see some of that with like the stuff at DC, where after um, the second Batman movie, the second Christopher Nolan Batman movie, The Dark Knight, when you know they said, oh, everything needs to be dark and gritty, yeah. and that that right. that's you know our takeaway from this. 
Um, and you know, without without realizing, hey, that's because it's bad. Right, right. <laughs> and so the the whole no jokes policy, um, it it yeah. just seems like people that don't get it. And um, I feel weird because I haven't voiced the complaint I have about um, the fantastic forecasting because I'm always afraid that. Uh, if you take one snippet of it, it's going to sound really wrong. So mm-hmm. I don't know if I do, – do you want to hear my gripe? Yeah, okay. absolutely. You're free to because it's it's a safe safe space. Well, I okay. Um, I don't even know where the casting is at this point because I think they changed it again. Well, I, I know they cast uh, Michael B. Jordan as, as Johnny Storm. Um, and he's, he's a terrific actor, but – I just feel like um, I, I I feel like that's kind of a cheap casting move. And see, this is where I would get in trouble if you just stop it there. It sounds horrible. But sure. um, you're casting uh, a black guy as the irreverent, wisecracking character. Oh yeah, we haven't seen that in movies for the last thirty years. Going back to Ed, you know Eddie Murphy in Forty Eight Hours. And, mm-hmm. and Beverly Hills Cop. I feel like if you want to make an actually interesting, like, uh, integration of, of a black character into the Fantastic Four, why not cast, like, Idris Elba as, um, as Reed Richards? That would be delightful. That man can act his ass Well, off. yeah, and I mean, oh, sure, look, we've, we, we've got the, kind of the, the sidekicky, wisecracking guy is the black guy. Oh, Again, not daring casting choice. The smartest man in the world. Yeah. Do that. So, yeah, I haven't weighed in on that casting, but to me it just felt like that was kind of the the gutless Hollywoodism where it's like, well, we can swap this out. And it's it just kind of fits with, you know, half the roles that Chris Tucker and Eddie Murphy have played over the last 30 years when they're in an action movie. I, you know, I, I would much rather have seen, like I said, you know, at least they didn't do Ben Grimm because then it would have been <laughs> if it had true. been if it had been Ben Grimm it would have been of course you cast the black guy that's going to be CGI'd through the whole thing right you that, know? That, that's true so you'll you'll see him for like ten minutes and then gone yeah. Um, but yeah I you know I didn't I, I never wanted to weigh in on that especially when dealing with 140 characters but the way that you say it as a full thought makes perfect sense well thank you I I, I I'm always afraid of of, of some of those you know. No, it is because I think there. I mean, it was going around on Twitter again yesterday. I think it was Kevin McGuire was was talking about how, you know, he's, you know, he, he's from a different uh, time period of of stories about the Fantastic Four. From uh, was it the Fantastic? I think it was that was what he was. No, there were people were talking about the Peter Parker. Oh yeah, yeah. Casting and stuff, and you know, it's like if you started reading comics. And you own, you know, you kind of are, are have this emotional resonance to something, even though it's fictional. It it, it feels like you're taking that away from uh, that fan, and it's certainly not. It's adding to the universe, but some people are so attached. And and I can't remember if it was the Fantastic Four debate or which one it was, because this comes up all the time. Um, where somebody just made the point and said, look, the stories you love are never going away. Like today's Jack Kirby day. It's Jack Kirby's birthday. Um, the stories that you love are, are still there. They're not negated. Even if a publisher were to say that didn't happen, it's retcon, whatever bullshit they right, come up right. with because they're publishers. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't take that book off your shelf and read it anymore. Well, yeah, that, and I mean that's the whole, and I, I hate this term, but that that's the whole response to the the concept of oh they're raping my childhood. First of all, right. perspective. Um, yeah. But yeah, I no, I agree with that. I don't know with with the uh, like in in the comics, and th- this speaks, I think, less to. Uh, racial or, or gender issues and more to readers fearing new stuff. You know, I wish that we didn't have to uh, swap out established characters um, with, you know, women and people of, co- uh, people of color to, to uh, get comic readers to read books about women and people of color. You know, right. I, I, I wish because that we could just they, create new characters. But again, I don't think that that's necessarily um, 
an, an issue with it's a commercial thing. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a commercial viability, and that's because I'm one of these people that I don't like this bullshit with with Thor, you know, because to me Thor is a name, but um, I think that there are plenty of female characters that could pick up Thor's hammer and have his power and all that. That's fine. I just have an issue with the whole it being Thor as a woman now. Right, but uh, you know, but it, because. You know, that's my fan perspective. But I love new characters. Like, I don't know. One of the things I wanted to ask you was what kind of stuff that you're reading. Because I took, like, a mental health day and I sat in bed and I, you know, over the weekend and, like, into Tuesday, did nothing but, like, read. I've read through, like, two novels and um, I've been reading comics. I started reading Genius, read through a bunch of Rat Queens, Lazarus, Dead Body Road, some Darwin Cook. Um so, you know, comics like Rat Queens and Genius are out there, well, <laughs> and it's really important that we talk about them and praise <laughs> them when there's good stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I wanted to reiterate that my gripe wasn't so much the swapping out the characters, but the, the fact that there are there's a huge portion of the fan base that won't embrace new characters and new concepts, so you have to... And that's the argument. Yeah, you yeah. have to graft new characters onto old characters. Yeah, um, and that's but that's the thing, you know, it's really important that when these new properties pick up steam, you know, um, like the walking dead was at one point, just some black and white indie comic. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I know. I agree. I, and I, I think rat Queens is a terrific book. Um, what else have I enjoyed? Probably my favorite book of the last, uh, year, uh, is Steve Epting and, and Ed Brubaker's, uh, velvet. Velvet. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. I just, Love that. Oh, such a good book. It's it's period stuff and it's spy stuff and it's so it's it's just this perfect marriage of of writing and drawing that just I wish I could make comics so good. And wait, and by, <laughs> by, by the way, um, I, I I failed to mention Betty Brightweiser on it and her her. Um, colors on the book are just color, the colors are stunning, uh, and she's killing it on on uh, uh, Brubaker and Phillips uh, Incognito and now um, the Fade Out. So she's she's amazing, and yeah, I I always make you know make a point of mentioning uh, artists because you know that's where I'm from, but color artists are are huge to it too. So yeah, I, I haven't uh, seen the Fade Out yet, but I um, saw a lot of really good tweets about it and um like just people just showing the cover and everything it looks really good yeah it's you know it's it's a great time for for comics and i feel like we're we're getting kind of the the diversity of content that we've been hoping for for a while so you know it's exciting well, this is, I mean, you know, talking about Velvet, that's kind of, you know, your wheelhouse is, is, is things like that, the spy stories and adventure stories and, you know, characters that have to undergo some kind of, you know, action sequence chase in order to eventually, you know, get to the next obstacle. Um, is there, like, what part of the process do you work in a twist of a story because it's it's one of these things that happens in in most of these genre stories is that you get really close to the end and you realize oh somebody's not who they said they were or oh that magic oil you're after is really fake or you know like when you're plotting out a story where do you um work those details out now i'm i'm i still consider myself to be more of an artist than a writer and you know I, I consider myself kind of a neophyte writer so I'm I'm definitely not the best guy to ask about this but as I've been putting this stuff together um, I realized at one point I didn't have enough oh shit moments um, and I'm trying to think of people that that do it really well where I'm I'm just astounded um, Brian K. Vaughn is really good at, at giving you that moment where you're like the characters are totally screwed. <laughs> How are they going to get out of How this? And um, 
so so I call those oh shit moments, and I'm I'm trying to yeah. to consciously go okay, I I need to have another oh shit moment, and well, you know, Kirkman is really good about it with with The Walking Dead, uh, and and he does it in Invincible too, where. Uh, sometimes it's a fake out and sometimes it's it's the real thing. And I, I'm sure there's more that I'm I'm just not thinking of. But yeah, I that's the big thing for me that I'm trying to learn how to how to use that better because it's such a great device, you know, to paint yeah, your characters I'd, into a corner. <laughs> uh, you know, it's just it's one of those things where I you know I love detective shows and I always wonder like, geez, how did they come up with that? Like, how did they come up with you know these perfect murders or whatever you know like I mean some of them are just so absurd and I'm and I just can't figure out like how did they how did their brains even come to that now a a tv show I I suppose is a bit different because they have a a writer's room where there's you know maybe six to fifteen people depending on the show um so when you're you know just this solitary storyteller sitting alone in, at your desk. Uh, the I don't know. Some people just have these incredible imaginative ideas, and I, I'm so jealous. Well, now, have, have you um, written a, uh, a detective story yet? Um, I have, yeah. I wrote – well, I did um, a comic short story with Jay Fife, um, and it was like a – not quite all ages, but a little bit higher than all ages. Um, but about like the twelve-year-old uh, thing, like range. And it was basically sort of like a, you know, that Scooby-Doo vibe. Yeah. And um, so it wasn't supernatural stuff, but it was you know kids, uh, you know, solving, uh, you know, who stole the test answers from the teacher. Um, so I did that, and um, and I've worked on a heist story because I spend a lot of time watching <laughs> leverage on Netflix. <laughs> well, I I love I love heist movies and caper movies. So, um I've always wanted to try to write something like that, but I've never been able to solve exactly how to do it. So, I mean, did you did you work from the end and go for and and work your way back? Um I think it just um yeah, I think because I I knew obviously that the that it was going to be a team. It wasn't going to be a, a, a single person. Um, and I knew that I wanted to have an object stolen from a museum. And at the time I was modeling at a museum, like a lot. <laughs> so it was just in my head when you're standing there or sitting for like three hours. <laughs> you, you were casing the joint. Just I was, Yeah. I was just kind of like, Oh, so what would they really do? And in reality, these tiny, you know, small museums no matter how rich the neighborhood is is they have like no security system um but they also most likely are not housing you know priceless works of art they're they're housing you know some good art although but i have to say that this museum did have a comic art installation that was priceless that was there for um a couple of months not i don't even think it was a couple months but it was um it was like a visiting exhibit oh that's cool yeah and it was it was pretty cool because like they had a panel of guests come like michael uslan and um uh denny o'neill like it had this great panel of guests greg hildebrandt was there i mean um so it was like this tiny tiny museum and um in jersey but you know, I doubt that they had any kind of real intricate security. <laughs> well, I, I have to ask if if you wrote a heist story, um, in addition to the heist itself and the misdirect, my favorite part of any heist story, especially with a team, well, obviously with a team, is the putting the band together sequence. Did did you spend mm. enough time on that? Because no, see, that's my cause... favorite thing. I I, I love any time you you get that kind of fast paced. Here, you yeah. know, here, here's we, this expert. Yeah. That's, and that's one of the best things about the first episode of Leverage is how they do that. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember because I, I, I watched the first year, few years and I, I lost track of it. Um, well, it's funny because like Mad Men ripped, riffed on it um, in like the third or fourth season finale. 
but I don't want to do any spoilers on on that in case you haven't watched it. But yeah, um, watched. you know, they were putting essentially putting together an agency, and it was very much like a like a, a putting the band together type of sequence for a heist movie. And I just I'm a sucker for that in in any context. I I love that. That is fun. That is fun. The only other like the the other mystery that I did that I was working on and had actually revised. Um, and hopefully my files are not lost. I'm hoping somebody can recover my files for me. Um, uh. Was a, um, a story centered around a roller derby team that somebody somebody's murdered on the derby team. Oh, that'd be fun. Well, not not in uh, real life. Not but, I mean, the yeah, story murder's would be not fun. fun but, yeah, so it was you know so it was um, the fun part that I got to have with that because sometimes like as just a brain exercise. Um, I love coming up with those crazy ass derby names. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're just, they're hilarious. Like they're so, some of them are just so creative. So, you know, like I had one that was all like based on Hollywood. Uh, I called it the Broadway broads team. So it was all Hollywood stuff. And I had like Dorothy Slamdridge, and, <laughs> you know, um, so it was just like goofy, goofy names. And that was like the most fun part of that story was wasting time thinking of entire teams that, you know, only a couple of them would be mentioned. But that's fun. Um, yeah. Well, somebody posted on Twitter. Uh, they said this is the best, you know, roller derby name of all time. And it was Stone Cold Jane Austen. And I thought that was pretty inspired. <laughs> that's great. I like that a lot. So I love it. Yeah, there's I, I I follow um a couple derby girls and it's just I'm so jealous they can do it because there is a team out here but it's um it's not a cheap hobby that's for one thing I mean those those women put in a lot of money into doing that and um I just can't imagine being that physical. <laughs> oh, it's it it it's really cool. I mean, uh, we we've gone to see. Uh, our the our local team the McLean County Misfits M I S S fits uh a few times and and it's always entertaining. Well there you go. Now we'll have to figure out how to work derby into one of your stories. <laughs> I don't know when derby was invented. It'll just require more research, which is what I get lost in when I'm writing. Is I'm one of these time wasters that just gets into Wikipedia and searches, and it's like I haven't written any words. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm going down a rabbit hole. I shouldn't call it a rabbit hole, but um, reading a, a fascinating biography of uh, this this uh, Hawaiian detective that uh, Charlie Chan was actually based on. Uh, the guy's name is Chang Apana, mm-hmm. and he was like a Honolulu. Um, poli- uh, police officer and later detective guys like five feet tall and his weapon of choice, a five foot bull whip. <laughs> this guy's gotta be in a comic. Wow. Come on. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a, uh, a biography of him right now. So I'm, I'm with you about going down the, the research rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, it's really hard to um, have the discipline of the writing part. Yeah, it's it's such a weird split between and it's the same way with with art, you know, when you when you're pulling in influences uh to kind of process and it'll eventually come out, you know, it's it's the the inputting of of the data that you know, you you'll eventually see it come out in the work. <laughs> I had a, again, I had a point when I started, but now it like a boom. <laughs> Sorry about that. Well, which part of the process is scariest for you? Is it any of the creative steps? Is it the publishing steps, working with working with a publisher, or handing off your project, or you know, at that point, is it the oh my god, is there is there anybody who will read this part? The scariest part is waiting for. Um for order numbers to come in, uh, which is kind of the part I'm, I'm at right now on, on a book because, you know, the way the comics industry is set up right now, uh, you live and die by your, your pre-orders. And, um, you know, a lot of that is you can wait around for, for stores 
to order your book and, and hope that your publisher is going to do a lot of stuff. But, you know, the reality of it is no one is as invested in your career as you are. So, you know, kind of following that up, if you own this book and you own your career, you know, you've got to be the person to call the stores. It's nice if, if your your publisher does some of it, but your publisher should not be more invested in your career and your personal success than you are. So, well, and plus they have more than you. Right. To be promoted. Exactly. So, you know, it's it's so scary to me and I really don't like doing it, but calling up a store, "Hi, my name's Steve Bryan. I've got a book coming out from Dark Horse, blah blah." And you know, I always feel like the biggest jerk on the planet because, you know, there there's a certain element of, you know, I'm not good at selling. And so that's always terrifying to me, but I feel like that if I'm not going to do that, um, how many sales am I not going to get for my book? And if if I don't get enough sales, am I going to get another shot? So that that's the scariest part so, of the process for me. Okay. Because I know that um, right now part of the, the tweets that are going out about Athena Voltaire um, are about – uh, is like I'm seeing people with the um, what do you call that? The like order form. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, like, what are the details on that? Where will people be able to get the book? Where should they be ordering? Or um, you know, is it you know you mentioned Dark Horse? Um, so is it something that's going to be like easily available? Is it only in certain places? Um, it's it's available everywhere. Uh, you know, Dark Horse is distributed to the comic industry through, uh, you know, comic shops through uh, Diamond Distributing, and to the book trade, they're they're distributed through Random House. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a pretty terrific um, arrangement to be able to have that that level of uh, reach. So, you know, that that's fantastic. And in terms of where people can get it, um, you know, the first the first answer is always your local comic shop. But, right. you know, if, if you can't get it there or you don't have one, uh, and pre-ordering is always best. But, yeah, if, if you don't have a local comic shop, um, there are a number of retailers that are uh, – I'm, I'm doing these little exclusive book plates where if you pre-order from this store or that store, um, you can get um, – an exclusive signed book plate. And the book plate images are these, these faux retro covers from, you know, Athena Voltaire in the 1930s, if it were a comic at that time. And uh, each one of them is signed and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, you can, you can pre-order through uh, some of these online stores um, that have exclusives. If, if you don't have a local comic shop and Amazon also carries it, Barnes and Noble, uh, all the major book bookstores too. Did that help, or that's, was that too, yeah, too vague? No, that's, no, that's exactly it. Um, is, so is it also going to be a digital product? I know that Dark Horse has their own digital app, uh, so I'm sure it will be. I'm just – I don't know all the particulars about that part yet. Well, I, I shouldn't say that because um, Dark Horse does have uh, one of the stories offered for free on the Dark Horse digital app right now. Uh, uh, one of the short stories from the, the compendium called uh, Athena Voltaire and the, the Feathered Serpent. So uh, you can go to Dark Horse Digital and get that for free. But um, I think the whole book will eventually be on there as well. And how, um, since this is, uh, th this was basically like some different content and some uh, revisited content that you like you were saying you rewrote and reworked um how many pages or how many stories are in this particular athena voltaire that people are going to be able to order it's a 240 page trade uh 240 page hardcover i'm sorry um that's huge yeah i'm, I'm pleased <laughs> and I'm, I'm thrilled they they got us a, a 20 dollar uh cover price so i'm i'm thrilled i'm thrilled with that but um 240 pages uh, it's pretty much I rescripted, you know, 200 plus pages of of, of story. Um, you George Lucas. I did. I, I totally went down that <laughs> rabbit hole. Um, but uh, I and I created like 50 brand new pages of art, 
and then um, a bunch of uh, like patches of, of swapping out characters and stuff like that to make it work with this. Because, I mean, essentially I, I went through the existing material, tore up a couple of my trades and wrote notes on the, on the sheets <laughs> and uh, then kind of built a, a script from that. Uh, so I, I re-scripted it from the existing art and uh, um, it's, it's kind of all new, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, I mean, the artwork is old in places, but, um, you know, I also... But the story is fresh. Right, right. All, all, all the, there are five stories in the book, and all of them... Well, one of them is a, a straight-up reprint, because we had done a, a, a one-shot with the black coat, a crossover um, right. with... With Ben... Ben Licious, yeah. Um, and so the the 14-page Athena story from that is um, intact, but everything else is completely new. So if you bought the existing material, you might recognize some of the art, but the, the stories are all different. Um, but if if you want to see how, how different everything is, go to Dark Horse Digital and download um, The Feathered Serpent. And you can look and say, well, this is still too close. I don't want to buy this book. That's fine. Or if you look at it and say, wow, this is drastically different. I must own this. Then, you know, that's great, too. Awesome. Um, now, is this the project that you funded on Kickstarter? Yes and no. Um, okay. I, I had done I, – I had funded a follow-up to it uh, – uh, not a follow-up to it, but I was going to do like a soft reboot, um, Athena Voltaire and the Volcano Goddess. Uh, and somewhere while I was working on uh, on that project, a friend of mine put the idea in my head that um, I wouldn't have to let the existing material I'd done with Paul fade into oblivion if I rescripted it. And I thought, well, this would be a nice thing to kind of set up a lot of the stuff I want to do in Volcano Goddess, this should just take a couple of months. And it ended up taking a couple of years. Uh, so I, I felt awful about that. Um, and during that time, uh, we had some, some fulfillment issues with the, the Kickstarter thing with, with binding the hardcover of the existing material. Um, I had never promised anyone um, physical copies of the, the Kickstarter thing, um, of, of the new content. So I was just going to give them PDFs. So one of the first things I, I said, you know, was, well, this book is ballooned from 48 pages to probably 96. So I appreciate your patience. You're going to get a longer story because of that patience. So thank you. And then when the compendium kind of popped up, I said, well, you're still going to get the, the, the 48 page book that got turned into a 96 page book, but here, here's this, this other book that I've rescripted. I want you to have this too. So, you know, in the end, the Kickstarter uh, supporters, hopefully in the next six months, you know, when I finish up Volcano Goddess, instead of getting 48 pages of content, should get a little over 300. So I hope that makes up for, for the delay. Um, does that make sense? Did I ramble through yeah. it too quick? No, because that's, I mean, one of the reasons that I, I was asking was because what some people um, do with Kickstarter is they find that they don't fund a volume very successfully, but they they manage to do um, successful campaigns at a much smaller uh, clip, like, you know, a $5,000 campaign for a single issue, which is usually like 22 to 30 pages. Um, and And I knew that your project had grown and I didn't know if I had somehow like missed Kickstarters in between there or what you had done to make the, the project a whole, this whole big thing. <laughs> oh, just, it, it's fueled by guilt at this point. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I, I feel like people have waited a while for this. So I wanted to give them as much content as I can. And I would like to do a Kickstarter again. A friend of mine w was suggesting like doing an issue at a time, like, like you're talking about. Um, or I, I've thought about just waiting until I have something completed because I, I'd like to, you know, make good on the trust that people have given me and, you know, give them a, a, a complete book. So I'm not sure which way I want to go. But, yeah, um, I, I'd like to do it again. Probably not for Athena, but for, for something else. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you had at least had a, a – even though, you know, 
took a different path. You had a successful Kickstarter experience. Yeah. Um, you know, at the, at the time I did it, um, I think we were still finding out what Kickstarter was going to be. And I think mm-hmm. it's kind of turned into, I, I, I think people respond best when it's completed work that um, you're essentially just pre-ordering. Instead, right. instead of saying, hey, will you fund me doing this book? I, I think some people can do that, some really talented people with a big you know, fan base. But you know, for, for someone like me, I think it's probably best uh, in the future to wait until I've got a complete book and then uh, fund it that way. I think that's what Guns of Shadow Valley did. Yeah. You know, you know our friends uh, Dave Wachter and... Jim Clark and, and Tom Maurer, they uh, they had years worth of content for free online, and they you know con- they they pitched to IDW. IDW offered you know gave them the deal to to print these gorgeous, unbelievably gorgeous books with you know content that they they already had out and people knew and they still had a great Kickstarter, you know because it's it's sort of this thing like well why would I pay for something that's for free. But, you know, if people really respond to it, they will. Yeah, well, I want to get back and do a webcomic again, you know, looking at at the fun that Dave's had with, with Guns of Shadow Valley and that Mike Norton's having with, with Battle Pug. Battle Pug, yeah. Oh, I've got just the story I want to do. I've got two strips in the can. I just want to get, you know, a few more done because I've been kind of doing that as my warm-up while I'm working on the Athena stuff. Uh-huh. Is I, I wanted to do something very different, something that's not quite as easily – retro or retro in a different way um okay so i've been working on that and god i just i'm jonesing well, it, to, to get it done yeah it worked for you know like uh danielle corsetto with uh, girls with slingshots and all new issues by bill ellis and danielle o'brien i mean that's they took their web comics and they make these beautiful books i mean danielle doesn't doesn't i don't think she did a kick she did kickstarter for her tour um which was which was interesting. She basically got to got to go to books bookstores all over the the world and um, sign books and sell books and stuff that she prints. I think she uses Lulu. Oh, that's excellent. Um, yeah. So, but that you know, it's just so cool because it's like, you know, these are the 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 folks that we you know we would hang out with at Super Show or something. <laughs> well, I I just think it's great that there's all these ways for people to take control of their, their career. You know, I'm, I'm curious about uh, how Patreon works. I, I, I'm thinking about something like that maybe. Um, seems neat. Yeah. It seems really neat. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing that's, you know, whatever you want to do, just try to find a way to, to make it happen. Well, that's good. I'm glad that, um, you know, that you're at the, at least you've reached the point where now people can pre-order Athena Voltaire so you're on to the new phase of that project. Yeah, I've actually been well. What I'm what I'm reading about um, uh, the guy that inspired Charlie Chan. Uh, you know, the the stuff I'm reading with that that's actually getting added into the the book I was talking about, the Volcano Goddess. And I've been drawing uh, a page while we've been talking. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely working on that next phase. Okay, excellent. And um, I know you normally do like um, the well. You talked about San Diego and Chicago um, and Fort Wayne. Um, do you, do you have any other shows for the rest of the year? Not for the rest of this year. Um, the Athena Voltaire Compendium comes out on December 10th for comic shops. Okay. And uh, honestly, I ran out of books. <laughs> okay. <laughs> After San Diego, I I knew I was getting down near the end, so. Uh, I I kind of canceled everything except for C two E two in San Diego, and uh, yeah, I've I've got a handful of of the the other books left. You know, because it's kind of hard to sell books at this point when you're saying, here's this volume, but I've got this really nice hardcover coming out in six months. So you know, sales kind of slowed down. So I I wanted to wait before I went back out until I had some some new content. Okay. Um, and if um, then people want to keep track of uh, the progress of Athena Voltaire and everything and any new projects, they can follow you at a variety of online places. I know that Twitter is like probably the best place, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I've realized I'm a really horrible Facebooker, so uh-huh. <laughs> Twitter okay. is probably best. Uh, and there I'm just uh, Steve Bryant Art. 
Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much for, you know, you took an, an hour out of your, your day when you should be doing drawings. Well, thanks for, <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to me ramble about nonsense. Oh, you know, this is, I was actually hoping because I'm like, I know we're going to talk about Athena because it's, you, you know that I love it and you know that, um, that we're going to promote the hell out of this book. And, um, but I didn't, I was hoping that we would have time to talk about other things and instead we got that out of the way first. It was fun. <laughs> I, there, there were some questions I, I hadn't been asked before and hopefully I, I, I didn't embarrass myself too much. No, I think it's great. And, uh, you know, at any time I, I need a 13-year-old's perspective, I'll ask you, <laughs> ask your son, what does he think about this? Oh, I thought you were saying, you know, I'm, I'm in an I, arrested state of development. When I need no. a 13-year-old's perspective, I'll ask you, Steve. I'll ask you. You infantile jackass. <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, I had a blast. And so you have yet to make a fart joke, so you're okay. <laughs> well, we edited those out. No, I, okay. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I have no response to that. Yeah. It's, you know, and it's because one of my friends was talking about fart jokes on Twitter yesterday, and I said it would be funny if Aquaman did it because bubbles. <laughs> oh, that, would, that would be funny. You know? So, Aquaman yeah. swinging, uh, swimming around to talking to a squid, maybe, saying, pull my finger. Yeah. Right. See? These are things that happen on Twitter. Um, I can't add anything. <laughs> All right. Well, you go back to drawing, and I will, you know, I will, I will see you online soon. Awesome. It sounds good. And yeah, we'll uh, we'll babble more. Yeah, we absolutely will. You guys can, of course, follow me also on Twitter, where I am most likely to be at Elizabeth Amber and at amberunmasked.com. And if you are so inclined, you can leave feedback at places like iTunes and Stitcher. And leave comments on the website, and that would be great. And remember to go, go follow Steve Bryant, and go please pre-order Athena Voltaire. Mm-hmm.